Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. Today on Core Principles, our very special guest is speaking to us virtually through his extensive and brilliant writings. Clive Staples Lewis, known as C.S. Lewis, lived from 1898 to 1963. He taught English literature at Oxford and Cambridge. He wrote fantasy allegory as well as nonfiction works, including Christian apologetics. The responses he offers to the questions I will pose in this interview come directly from those writings he left us. The first thing I wanted to ask you about, Professor Lewis, is your Christian faith. Given your intellectual pursuits, I find it remarkable that you didn't merely consider Jesus a brilliant teacher. Could you tell us how you came to accept him as Lord? It's a foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. As for me, I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet, I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, not in great emotion. Emotion is perhaps the last word we can apply to some of the most important events. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. Was it a struggle to reconcile faith and your intellectual pursuits? I was by then too experienced in literary criticism to regard the Gospels as myths. They had not the mythical taste, and yet the very matter which they set down in their artless historical fashion was precisely the matter of the great myths. If ever a myth had become fact, had been incarnated, it would be just like this. Here and here only in all time, the myth must have become fact. The word, flesh, God, man. This is not a religion nor a philosophy. It is the summing up and actuality of them all. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. You can put this another way by saying 
that while in other sciences, the instruments you use are things external to yourself, things like microscopes, telescopes, the instrument through which you see God is your whole self. And if a man's self is not kept clean and bright, his glimpse of God will be blurred, like the moon seen through a dirty telescope. The more we let God take us over, the more truly ourselves we become, because he made us. He invented us. He invented all the different people that you and I were intended to be. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. Were there any particular stumbling blocks that you had to overcome? I remember Christian teachers telling me long ago that I must hate a bad man's actions, but not hate the bad man. Or as they would say, hate the sin, but not the sinner. I used to think this a silly, straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life, namely myself. However much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed, I went on loving myself. There had never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I hated the things was that I loved the man. Just because I loved myself, I was sorry to find out that I was the sort of man who did those things. But of course, if God forgives us, we must forgive ourselves. Otherwise, it's like setting up ourselves as a higher tribunal than him. I'm sure there are many people who profess Christianity, but who will, as the Bible says, turn away when persecution comes. Isn't that tragic? You never know how much you believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life or death to you. It's easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you're merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. Spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble poison. Wow, that's a sobering thought. But so many people seem to be trying to do good, even those who don't follow Christ. The Christian is in a different position from the other people who are trying to be good. They hope, by being good, to please God if there is one, or if they think there is not, at least they hope to deserve approval from good men. But the Christian thinks any good he does comes from the Christ life inside him. He does not think God will love us because we are good. 
but that God will make us good because he loves us. Just as the roof of a greenhouse does not attract the sun because it is bright, it becomes bright because the sun shines on it. We are mirrors whose brightness is wholly derived from the sun that shines upon us. To have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him, but trying in a new way, a less worried way, not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he saved you already, not hoping to get to heaven for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act a certain way, because a first faint glimpse of heaven is already inside you. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. Well, that sounds like both truth and grace. Yes, and love. God, who needs nothing, loves into existence holy, superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe, already foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the messial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. In our current era, people who lead public lives, such as professors and authors like yourself, C.S. Lewis, are subjected to ruinous backlash if they speak as you are speaking. Is it worth such a cost to be as bold as you are? Listen, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Well, that's a powerful word. I hope it will encourage others to be bold. I think people want to have a certain quality about them, but we're scared to pay the price some would impose. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get in the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the one who has them. They are not a sort of prize, which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. And all the time, such as the tragic comedy of our situation, we continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. 
you can hardly open an article without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive or dynamism or self-sacrifice or creativity. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and then demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and then are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the gildings be fruitful. That is a tough lesson but so obviously true. Meanwhile, Professor Lewis, there are people in positions of power and influence who are avoiding the harsh realities you've described by simply changing the meaning of well-established words, and they call their philosophy progressive. Progress means getting nearer to the place you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turn, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. Oh, they, they hate that truth. And they reject it really hard. Reality itself seems to be their enemy. They berate the rest of us for resisting their anti-reality. They are literally bombarding us with falsehood and then calling us crazy for rejecting it. It's gaslighting on a nationwide scale. The sane would do no good if they made themselves mad to help madmen. Meanwhile, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him then a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. Well, thank you for that reminder, Professor Lewis. I wanted to ask you about one of the things they've been most aggressively gaslighting us about, the COVID-19 pandemic. The virus, called SARS-CoV-2, is certainly real. And the disease it can cause, COVID-19, is certainly real. In fact, it can be quite nasty and even deadly. But so much misinformation is being reported constantly and incessantly, it's terrifying people. And I think that of all the comorbidities that cause harm, fear is the worst of them. Could you offer us any counsel about this present situation? In one way, we think a great deal too much of it. How are we to live in this time, we ask ourselves. I am tempted to reply, why live as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you are already living in this age of cancer and paralysis and air raids and railway accidents and motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before now. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, that being anesthetics. But we had that still. 
it is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by this, let it find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends, not huddled like frightened sheep and thinking about catastrophe. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that but they need not dominate our minds. Thank you so much for that encouragement, Professor Lewis. I pray many will heed it. But there are many who have suffered loss. And of course, we all want to comfort and empathize with everyone who suffers. I'm sure there is a balance because truth and love are never at odds, but are one and the same. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, we are, not metaphorically, but in very truth, a divine work of art, something that God is making, and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. It is natural for us to wish that God had designed for us a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. To ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God because he is what he is. His love must, in the nature of things, be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable. What we would here and now call our happiness is not the end God chiefly has in view, but when we are such as he can love without impediment, then we shall in fact be happy. Imagine yourself as a living house God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But God is building a palace. He intends to come live in it himself. Wow, I appreciate word pictures. Those are vivid, indeed. Before we close, I wanted to ask you, C.S. Lewis, about your friendship with another writer whose works I love, J.R.R. Tolkien. 
What can you tell us about that friendship? Friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. It is when two such persons discover one another, when, whether with immense difficulties and semi-articulate fumblings, or with what would seem to us amazing and elliptical speed, they share their vision. It is then that friendship is born, and instantly they stand together in an immense solitude. In friendship, we think we have chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference in the dates of our birth, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at a first meeting. Any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies is always at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discriminating and good taste in finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others. Well, that is beautiful, but loving other people and being vulnerable can be frightening. Yes, love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and all the perturbations of love is hell. Consider this. It cost God nothing, so far as we know, to create nice things, but to convert rebellious wills cost him crucifixion. Yes, sir. And that is the ultimate expression of love. That's a perfect place to conclude this interview. Thank you so much for your wise words, C.S. Lewis. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July. L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information. And please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.